In the years I've spent listening to hundreds of people's stories of good and difficult declines and deaths, I've learned one thing. People who are willing to contemplate their aging, vulnerability, and mortality often live better lives in old age and illness, and they experience better deaths than those who don't. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Hi everybody, my name is Susie Stadler. I am an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the producer of this program. I would like to welcome everybody to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that shape the experiences of later life. I would like to encourage others to follow the example of our loyal season sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza and the Walnut Foundation. 80% of our work is done by volunteers, and we would love to grow our capacity with more funding. Please subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform and share it with others. What if we didn't fear death, and what if we felt empowered to actually shape how we die? I have the pleasure of talking with Katie Butler, journalist and author of two wonderful books who advocates for having agency to the very end. Katie, welcome to At Home on Air. We're so pleased to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie. I just want to say I love At Home with Growing Older. And <laughs> I feel like what's so important around these issues is community. And you continue to build community and be a thought leader. And I'm happy to be here. I really am. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. I really appreciate it. We love you too. <laughs> So the topic of conversation is the emotional tasks of the last chapters of life, creating a vision for your own good death. You have written two impactful books on this subject, one from a very personal perspective, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, which was actually a national bestseller when it was published in 2013, and one of the 100 most notable books on the New York Times list. And the last one is The Art of Dying Well, which I just reread again, and it's a fantastic guide, if one can say this, to the spiritual, emotional, medical, and practical challenges of later life. So I would love to start with the question, why and how did you get involved in this issue of how to die well? Well, I was already a journalist, and I already had critical thinking about institutions and systems. And then my father, who I just deeply, deeply loved, had a devastating stroke at the age of 79. And I was on the West Coast and they were on the East Coast. And I ended up being part of that rollerboard generation where we are flying back and forth when our parents have health crises. I got very committed and involved with them. It was a long, painful decline. And two years after that stroke, he was given a pacemaker without any meaningful conversation about quality of life, family values, any of that. The fact that he was in this 
major, major painful decline. And I started to just see how technology has in some ways malformed our approaches to the end of life and that we had such a hard time articulating what mattered to us with our doctors or having conversations over that great divide between medicine and medical language and ordinary life and ordinary language. He died after seven years of a very slow decline. And I was just bewildered and I think angry that his end of life had been this painful and as poorly supported. I mean, it's ironic because a lot of money was spent, but in terms of the things that really could have been supportive for him from medicine had been so lacking, so scarce. It sent me on this quest, I guess, essentially. And I ended up writing a New York Times magazine article and then the book. It's been about 10 years of really contemplating. In your book, The Art of Dying Well, you say we live in a time when advanced medicine wards off death far better than it helps us prepare for peaceful ones. We feel the loss. Many of us hunger to restore a sense of ceremony, community, and yes, even beauty to our final passage. We want more than pain control and a clean bed. We hope to die well. So what's the, what's the solution? How can we make it better? <laughs> you know, I listen to that and I think there's so much that is out of our control too. I mean, I sort of see it as somewhat analogous to when you decide where you're going to go to college or what you're going to do for a living. It really is good to have a plan and think ahead and apply to colleges or go to the professional school or the trade school or whatever. We influence our lives, but we don't control them. And I hope that I really kept the balance in these books between the aspects of what we're facing that are completely not controllable and the fact that we can, in fact, shape where we're heading. So I want to just throw that out because I don't want to get too consumeristic about this, that we really are going to be able to create these perfect deaths for ourselves. But I am going to read you a little summary from The Art of Dying Well, which I think should be called The Art of Living and Dying Well, because three quarters of it is about having a positive 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And only the last quarter is really about that little period we call dying. In the years I've spent listening to hundreds of people's stories of good and difficult declines and deaths, I've learned one thing. People who are willing to contemplate their aging, vulnerability, and mortality often live better lives in old age and illness, and they experience better deaths than those who don't. They keep shaping lives of comfort, joy, and meaning, even as their bodies decline. They get clear-eyed about the trajectory of their illnesses so they can plan. They regard their doctors as their consultants and not their bosses. They seek out medical allies who help them thrive, even in the face of disappointment and adversity, and they prepare for a good death. They tend to enroll in hospice earlier, and they often feel and function better, and sometimes they even live longer than those who pursue maximum treatment. They make peace with the coming of death, and they seize the time to forgive, to apologize and to thank those they love. They rethink the meaning of hope and they often die with less physical suffering and just as much attention to the sacred as our ancestors did. So that's really my sense of what's possible 
that if you do face things and you don't let yourself be completely enslaved by this fear of death, so you just want to go into denial, you really have an opportunity to do some shaping of this, this final, whatever it is, this final chapter, this final quarter of our lives. There's a couple of things that I think are really important. One is understanding the hidden rules of the system of medicine. And this is something that if you're in medicine, this is like a no-brainer, of course. But if you're outside medicine, you really don't know this, which is as you decline, you will be offered just about any technological or chemical option that may possibly extend your life or may not, and may or may not interfere with your quality of life. But what you don't know if you're outside the system is that these things will keep being offered up and served up to you all the way to the ICU. And they will only stop when either you or someone in your family actually says, this is enough. So there is this hidden algorithm within medicine, which is that it's completely up to the family and the person and that they will stop. Sometimes they're just silently pleading with you in their minds. You know, I hope this family member says, let's stop now. I hope she asks the difficult question. But often it's one of those conversations where neither person wants to broach the conversation. It's so important to realize that it really is on you and it really is on your family member. And if you're starting to feel like the quality of life that's being preserved at this point is not adequate for you and your own values, you need to speak up or have people who understand what you care about who are willing to speak up for you. So I think that's one of the most important things. But to back up a bit, there's three ways we live in a very, very different time right now. You know, one is that healthy, vigorous old age has been extended for a lot of people, especially people who are at upper levels of income or education. And then there's also been a long expansion of what's sometimes called old, old age, which is that more frail, fragile, slow decline kind of state. So we've got these two expansions in the old image of what old age was. And then of course there's COVID, which is also complicating things in all kinds of ways. So I wanna talk about when you get into that more frail state. Let's say you're starting to accumulate ologists, you know, you have a cardiologist maybe and a radiologist and maybe an oncologist. These ologists start to accumulate on your appointment book. Maybe you have a heart problem, maybe nothing super major, but you're starting to see that the final decline is somewhere in the neighborhood. I think at this point, it's extremely important to get a trajectory of your illness, especially if it's one that's likely to finally end in your death. It could be very slow, like diabetes or heart disease. It could be much more rapid, like certain kinds of cancers that are not easily treatable. There are four or five trajectories that are very, very common toward the end of life. One of them is called the Niagara Falls trajectory. This is the one we all hope and wish for, which is to sail along at a really high quality of life and then boom, something's gonna happen and we're gonna fall down really quickly and die. That's what almost everybody wants. 
but it's only like 10, maximum 20% of people who do die that way. So it's not enough to just hope that that's going to be you. Then there's the stair step down, which is what happened with my dad. He had vascular dementia. So the stair step is literally like a stair step. You have a plateau and then you will have maybe another mini stroke or a stroke, and then you'll have this decline. And then that'll restabilize. You'll go along on a plateau again, and then there'll be another little crisis and you'll have another step down. There's something very useful about being able to see that whole pattern on a piece of paper, because otherwise, every time there's a step down, you think, oh, what happened? This wasn't supposed to happen. We were supposed to stabilize and everything was supposed to be hunky-dory forever. But no, there's going to be these continued declines. Another one is a looping decline. Imagine you have a period of sort of okayness. Then you might go into the hospital, perhaps your heart failure gets out of whack. You get restabilized in the hospital. Maybe you do climb up a bit. And so you're not at quite as bad a point as you were at the crisis, but you never quite get up to the level of where you were the last time. And then there's another kind of dip down the slide and another restabilization and you come up a little bit. And then again, you got another decline. There's a fourth trajectory, and that's the dwindles. And the dwindles is when you have multiple small or possibly major chronic things. You decline very slowly, but you keep declining. There's nothing super dramatic happening. One of my grandmothers was like this. She lived at home until 92, and she got up in the middle of the night, went to the bathroom, fell on the floor, and was found in the morning. You know, it's often like a fall will be kind of the final kibosh for those people. So getting some kind of a map of what this trajectory is going to look like, what is this landscape going to look like for you or for somebody you love a lot? And once you have that overview, I think it's a lot easier to make these decisions about quality of life versus length of life. And when you're starting to feel you want to transit maybe get a palliative care conversation going, bring in other kinds of medical help that aren't necessarily focused on length of life, but might be focused on keeping you as functional as possible. If you have one of those little maps, I think it helps a lot. Katie, that was super helpful. Decisions sort of depend on what your landscape is. Hopefully doctors will be able to do this for you. In your book, which you start sort of in the 60s, planning for a good death, I feel like doctors should talk to you early on when interventions start happening, how this intervention will impact you long-term. Yeah, and I do want to say these charts are in fact in the book. So if you get the book, they're there. I didn't create them. They were created by a geriatrician named Joanne Lynn. I think it's very important to ask, what is the goal here? Is the goal here to give me more time? Is the goal here to maximize my function? And if the goal is to give me more time, how is that going to affect my function? Because again, those of us in the lay public, we're often more concerned about our ability to enjoy life, our comfort, and our function then we are necessarily concerned with eking out the last extra week or three weeks or three months of life, at least theoretically, you know, maybe when we're faced with it, it's harder, yes. but at least now when we're not in the middle of crisis. So 
I think that question is something to ask a doctor, especially if you're feeling confused. What's the goal here? And then you can see if your goals are really in alignment. There's a woman in my book, Amy Berman. She's a very highly qualified nurse and kind of a healthcare nerd. But she had a very, very bad inflammatory breast cancer, a kind of breast cancer that is really very pessimistic in its prognosis. And she went to the top expert in her cancer. He wanted to do everything, even though she had already had a biopsy that showed it was stage four and had spread to her bones. So she said, no, thank you. Went to a different oncologist. And the first question the different oncologist said to her is, what are we trying to accomplish? What do you want to accomplish? And she said she wanted the Niagara Falls trajectory. She wants to stay highly functional. She's now nine years out. She said no to all of the aggressive treatments. She's only done estrogen suppressing chemotherapy, oral chemotherapy. I mean, not everybody gets that kind of incredible payoff, but sometimes people actually get a better length of life payoff out of the more palliative function-oriented treatment than they do when they throw everything at it. It's one of the many ironies, the many paradoxes. Spirituality is a big part of your perspective. And I remember many years ago, I listened to Zen teacher and priest Norman Fisher, who said, there are three certainties. We all die. We'll all die alone. And we don't know when we will die. That makes me afraid. (laughs) How does Buddhism and spirituality sort of factor into your perspective? I lived in Thich Nhat Hanh's community in Southern France for nearly a year in my 40s. And every morning we used to recite the four remembrances. I am of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I'm of the nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent getting sick. I am of the nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my death. And everything and everyone that I love will eventually be separated from me. There's nothing I can do to prevent that. And we would recite this every morning. And at the time, you know, I was in my 40s, I was healthy. I sort of thought, well, yeah, of course, we're going to get sick, but wasn't so sure about the getting old and dying part, you know, surely an exception will be made. But I think it actually did penetrate in some way. Also, I was born in South Africa and raised in England. And I do think that European perspectives on this and other cultures too, I've talked to a lot of doctors from the Middle East who say the same thing. There's a little more openness and realism to the reality of dying and a little less technological utopianism that technologies are going to get us out of everything. You know, there's going to be miracle cures around the corner. There's something useful to a certain degree of realism or pessimism even when you're looking at toward the end of your life. I think our whole lives are a process of loving and connecting and attaching to people and things and experiences and then losses. You know, we have losses from divorces. We have losses from estrangements. We have many, many deaths along the course of our lives. And I don't know. I think we're all a little tougher than we think you know we we do we lose people we love they die they die prematurely or we have misunderstandings with them and i i I guess i see that 
the pain we suffer when we lose people that we love or that we contemplate leaving our own lives, the pain we suffer is the other side of the coin to something that's the most beautiful about us, which is that we do have this capacity to love and we do have this capacity for joy. Most of us are gonna miss our lives and the moment of dying. It's not gonna be easy to simply say, you know, I accept it, I let go. But a lot of people at the very, very ends of their lives do apparently let go and feel at peace. And that's also a beautiful thing. One of the things I learned the most from actually writing the book is the importance of rites of passage, the importance of rituals. I think that's one of the things that's so difficult about hospital deaths and ICU deaths is this lack of a sense of the sacred. And so I do write about things like bringing those little LED candles into a hospital room. If you can, bringing in flowers or photographs. And given this incredible estrangement as a result of COVID and fear of infection, creating an altar at home and keeping a vigil at home if you are being prevented from actually being at the bedside and vigiling at the bedside. There's something very important about this vigiling, at least as important for the survivors as it is for the person who is actually dying. In fact, sometimes I think it's even more important because the person dying may be drugged up and unconscious and leaving this life. And I guess we all know that there are many times when people don't die until the relatives finally leave the room and go down to the hospital cafeteria for coffee. I vigiled with my dad for, I think, six or seven days, and it was definitely a painful experience. My dad was an agnostic. I was a Buddhist, but a volunteer chaplain offered to do last rites for my dad. And I said yes, afraid that my violently atheistic mother would interrupt and come in and find out what we were doing. But it was a tremendous freeing of my heart to speak words aloud that basically said, I mean, I'm turning over your soul to the companionship of the saints. Now, literally, that wasn't really a resonant metaphor for me. But the sense of actually speaking aloud that I am letting go of you and I'm letting go of you to the beauty of the universe and that I love you and that I'm also letting go and that my relationship with the world is going to be different now because I am no longer your daughter. You know, I am now the older generation myself that is going to be the elders and the wise ones. I'm a big fan of making up your own rituals. And the book has rituals all through the life process because we can create these altars when someone we love dies. We can create altars or ceremonies when we retire or we shift what we're doing on a daily basis. There's this whole phenomenon called ambiguous loss. When you, let's say you're a caregiver for somebody who has dementia and they drift away, their body is still there, but you're no longer relating. You also have experienced the loss of your role as a wife or a husband and you are now just a caregiver. And there've been women who have removed their wedding rings at this point mm -hmm. to really acknowledge that there has been this major, major change in the relationship. So I'm a big fan of do it yourself. It doesn't have to be out of a spiritual tradition, but candles are just amazing. You know, lighting a candle in almost any situation 
brings you into the moment. You're so aware of the evanescence of life because candles themselves are beautiful and fading, just like flowers. Their beauty is wound up in their transience. And so to have these physical symbols that actually with your own body, you touch or you light, it brings you into your body in a way that I think is very important. From your book, you talk about the basics we should think about when we think about how we want our own death to go. And this was comfort, adequate help, pain control, and expand your horizon. And you just talked about sort of the expand your horizon of this. The other thing I wanted to touch on, the social death of COVID. We are in a very specific period of time, and I think death and dying is much more part of everyday life, more than everybody's everyday life, <laughs> all ages. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I did a lot of coverage of the AIDS crisis. And I'm seeing more analogies as time goes on, which is that obviously the most people who have died of COVID either had multiple comorbidities of some kind, obesity, diabetes, or they have been in our age group. They have been over 65. And during the AIDS crisis, it was kind of like, oh, those are just gay men, right? And now I feel we have treated people in nursing homes and assisted living in much the same way, that their autonomy has been completely removed. They have been literally incarcerated. And these blanket no visitor policies have been a social death for a lot of people. And I just think it was immoral. The Medicare system now says, no, you are not allowed to deprive people of visitors unless there's some really good reason, like COVID is rampant right now through the nursing home. So I'm really glad about that change. A certain amount of prejudice is not hostility. It's just neglect and indifference. And I feel that's part of what happened. And I know I sound like a Republican to say this, but don't enslave yourself to your fear of death. I mean, if you are healthy and you are triply vaccinated, your chance, even with these latest variants of ending up hospitalized or seriously ill, are quite small. The Omicron case slash death rate in South Africa is only something like 0.2%. So in some ways, we've been thrown back into the world that existed before 1950. There were always infectious diseases that ran rampant and took people out arbitrarily. And I have friends who are becoming agoraphobic because they're staying inside. They're starting to become afraid to even go walk the dog outside. You know, some people have serious reasons why they have to be super, super cautious. And I don't deny that. But if you're not in one of those categories, please go out and walk the dog. Please take a walk with a friend. Get masked if you feel you need to. You know, don't do stupid things like huge parties. I also think we've really got to balance the insidious effects of this social isolation against the realistic risks that we face. So I don't want it to sound irresponsible, but at the same time, I really want to encourage people to make sure that we're taking care of their social needs because these are so primary. I mean, one of the worst things that any culture can do to you is shunning or banning, you know, or solitary confinement. These are inhuman things. So try to balance those real needs of yourself along with your need for safety and to not be anxious. Thanks, Kitty.
You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. We're going to now open it up for audience questions and Rachel Friedman. Mm -hmm who is one of our steering committee members and long-term volunteer, will lead and monitor the chat and read the questions. Thank you, Susie. I'm finding myself wondering about your relationship to physician-assisted dying and what you recommend people know about that as they anticipate the end. And that ties into a question by Casey, which is, what do you do when you're ready to die and your body just won't? Tough and real. As everybody knows, physician-assisted dying is becoming much more widespread and much more legalized. I think it's following the same path as legalized marijuana. I don't know what that says about a culture, but it is. There are some limits. I mean, I think, again, assisted dying can be as meaningful, as sacred, as ritualized as any other form of death. <laughs> But again, there you do have issues like buy-in from your family, you know, the same questions still come up. What do you want your death to look like? Do you want to die at home? Do you want your dog on the bed? How are you going to make this so you leave a good emotional legacy for your family and a good experience where they can look back and feel, I did the right thing. I wasn't conflicted, you know? Dying is relational and your emotional legacy matters. And there may have to be several conversations with several different people in that process, just as they will with any other kind of decline or death. The other thing I do feel is that we are not funding palliative care, hospice, speech therapy, physical therapy, home support, this incredible program called the PACE program, which should be available in every single community in the country. PACE supplies real on the spot support to families who are caregivers so that they don't have to put people in nursing homes. I mean, we could be doing so much to make the process of decline and death better if we were directing our dollars differently. The only thing that I don't like about physician-assisted dying is the sense that this is going to be the easy way out and that we're not going to need support. Assisted dying is cheap, right? And home support over years is expensive. And I want to make sure that we keep pushing politically for the home support at the same time that we enlarge people's freedom of movement and choice. Thank you. Yeah. It seems like there's a whole lot of education needed for people to understand what physician-assisted dying even entails. I think a lot of people are under the impression that, well, they just get a pill and they take it and there's so much more that's entailed. True. It's a multi-step process. It takes, you know, months and you got to kind of time it right. And if you have dementia, you don't qualify. So there's a lot. And then there's also the other option, voluntarily refusing eating and drinking. Actually, there are a lot of deaths that are happening that way, where people are getting heavily sedated and they're not drinking and they're not eating. So that is also an option. How do you choose a good hospice, asks Nina. Wonderful question. There are nonprofit hospices that are good, and there are nonprofit hospices that are not that great. There are for profit hospices that are good, 
and they're for-profit hospices that are not that great. I would say, if you have any friends who have gone through a hospice experience, I would check with them. There are websites you can go to. There's the Medicare website that rates hospices on certain criteria. But I think you also need to just ask around in the community. I think I would put a lot of weight on the first conversations that I had with people in the system. And there are questions you can ask them about staffing levels, like how many nurses do you have per patient? How many patients do you have per nurse? And I think it's something like you don't want a lot more than eight or 12. Also, one of my big points in all of my writing is stay in touch with your common sense. You know, if your first interactions with a hospice are not that great, really take that into account and see what other options you have. It's maybe the three bid process. Check out three different hospices and see how you feel. Unfortunately, I think we also need to lower our expectations of hospice. It's very unlikely they will send someone out to be there at the moment of death, for example. And I think we assume that they will be there. A huge amount of the burden of bedside caregiving will be on the family and on anybody you hire. Hospices have moved from a community-based metaphor to a service provider metaphor. They are more business-like as time has gone on, providing fee-for-service kind of thinking. So it can be wonderful and it can also be disappointing. Given that, Gretchen asks, what is the role or do you think there is a role for end-of-life doulas? I think that's wonderful. You know, if you have the money to hire them privately, end-of-life doulas are analogous to birth doulas who would be there to really support the spiritual and emotional needs of the mother, separate from the midwife. And then at the end of life, the hospice nurses are the world's expert on pain control at the end of life. They're probably better than most physicians. And those kind of things should be taken care of quite competently if you've got a decent hospice. But, you know, the preparing of the space, the emotions of the family, the caregiving, a lot of that kind of goes by the wayside or people make it up as they go along. So to have someone like an end-of-life doula, a death doula, who's experienced and feels good to you is a wonderful thing if you can afford it. Again, it's outside the medical system. It's not something anybody's going to pay for. Thank you. Sandra and Janet are asking about near-death experiences and what experiences you've had with people in near-death experience. The only experience that I have had was my father's death, and I actually was not there for the moment of his death. My mother and I were kind of tag-teaming, and she was there when he actually died. Hospice nurses often talk about five emotional tasks of the end of life that I think are really important. They are, thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. And my theory is that the more we say those first four, you know, the thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, the more prepared we're going to be for that final goodbye. And you don't have to wait until someone has a deathly diagnosis to apologize or to be kind or to thank someone. I mean, it happens to me all the time. Like someone crosses my mind and I think, God, that was nice. You know, well, so just call them up and leave them a message. I think that's important. I have one friend, John Perry Barlow, who is thoroughly dead now, 
but he was revived after some extraordinary amount of time in the netherworld, like eight minutes or so before they really got him back in a hospital. And he said there was, you know, there was no column of white light. There was nothing like that. There was just kind of a carousel of noise. And then he came back. So I guess there's a variety of the Mm -hmm. kind of experiences that people have. Lily asks, what's your view of prepaying for a funeral? Everything that you're talking about involves thinking about this way in advance. We all think that there's going to be like some huge chapter where we know we're dying and we're going to be able to visit hospices and make our end of life arrangements. (laughs) Those things about forgiving and telling people you love them. Those are things that we should be doing now. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's wonderful to plan your memorial service and plan the music that you'd like to have played and discuss that. If you have a partner or if you're single, make somebody be your sort of honorary sister or honorary brother and be partners for each other in that way. I think it's a wonderful kind of shallow end of the pool way of getting into these discussions. Like, My husband doesn't really want to talk about his end of life wishes at all, but he's happy to give me a playlist for what he'd like to have at the memorial service. So that can be kind of a way into a conversation with somebody who doesn't want to talk about it that much. I think it's great to prepay and pre-buy, you know, decide if you want to be cremated and to prepay things like that. I don't see a problem with it. I mean, I don't really know the ins and outs of the funeral industry and when that's exploitative and when it isn't, when it makes sense and when it doesn't, but it seems like a great thing to think about. Somebody brought up a segment on NPR that I also heard, which was about the popularity of new burial ideas that included composting. I'm sure a lot of people wrote (laughs) to you and said, Katie, turn on NPR right now. Do you have an opinion about those things? You know, not really. My specialty is pre-death from the moment that you recognize you're not going to live forever until when you actually die. Mm -hmm. And I think this is all baby boom generation, question authority, do things a different way, more the merrier capacity for imagination and creativity. And I think it's great. I love Susie's comment about she's decided what she wants to drink when she's dying, lemon and rosemary. That's a start. I think that speaks to what you were saying about coming to the topic from a different perspective, whether it's music or food or as an open door. Yeah. And there's also an advanced directive that I like a lot, which is called Five Wishes. Mm -hmm. Not everybody loves Five Wishes, but you can download it for like five bucks. What I love about it, it's not just If such and such happens, I don't consider my quality of life enough. I don't want to be put on a ventilator, which is just intimidating and horrible to think about, right? But it's things like, I would like to hear certain music playing. I would like to be massaged with oil or have my hands massaged with oil. I'd like people to know that I want to be forgiven by my family and my friends and others for whatever I did during my lifetime that was a transgression of some kind. So what I love about it is it kind of widens the door and then it makes the technical mechanical part of it a lot less intimidating. Again, one of the things I say in the book is have a vision and work back from there. Most people want to die at home. Not everybody is gonna succeed, 
But if you want to die at home, you got to work back from there. There's certain steps you're going to have to take because at some point you're going to have to say, no, I do not want to go in the ICU or no, I do not want to go back in the hospital another time because we know that one of these hospital visits is going to end in my death. So I would rather tough it out at home or not go to the hospital or have a do not resuscitate order or a post. If you get real technical about it, there's something called the post, P-O-L-S-T, which is a pretty universal, clear doctor's orders for the end of life. And so people who have lung cancer, they might actually have a post on orange paper stuck to the outside of the house so that the EMT knows not to drag them to the hospital. You got to be pretty explicit if you want to get diverted from the conveyor belt, which is the highly technological end of life conveyor belt that ends in the ICU. A fifth of people either die in the ICU or they die very, very shortly after being in the ICU. Well, thank you so much for educating us about what the other options even are that aren't in popular culture. Susie asked if it would be too personal to ask what your own version of a good death is. I think it's pretty generic. You know, I would like to die in my own bed at home. I would like my husband to still be alive and to be there with me. I'm an introvert, so I could see also really needing some privacy and quiet, maybe more than the people who I know might want. I want people to be honest with me that I am dying and I want to be able to speak whatever I'm worried about, to speak aloud, whatever that might be. I want to leave a good emotional legacy. I definitely want to die feeling that I have made amends to everybody that I could have made amends to. Mary Oliver read aloud, probably some Rumi read aloud. There's this beautiful bathing and honoring practice for the end of life, which is in the book, The Art of Dying Well. You can also look it up as bathing and honoring practice. It was created by some nurses. It's just beautiful. It's really for the family after the moment of death and especially as a way to make sacred a hospital death. But you can actually do it with your own body. It just starts with, I honor my hair that the wind has played with. I honor my brow, the birthplace of my thoughts. We honor your lips that have spoken truth. You can go through the whole body of a person who has just died and feel a fantastic sense of connection. It's a beautiful spiritual, but not religious ceremony. There's nothing that ties it to any particular religion, but washing the body after death is almost a universal, as a cultural ritual. Somebody recommended Being Mortal as a good book for starting conversations. And I also wanted to mention The Conversation Project, which is sort of a workbook for how to get conversations started. But James asked how we talk about this with our children and grandchildren, because there's such a push away. Well, I don't want to talk about that. As parents and grandparents, we want to normalize it. Yeah, yeah. I I have several different suggestions. My books are good openers, especially the first one, because the first book, which is Knocking on Heaven's Door, is a description of seven years of family caregiving. And they can imagine themselves in that role with you, which they may end up being. And so it is a good opener. The whole book is based on a piece I did for the New York Times called What Broke My Father's Heart. It was in the New York Times magazine. And if someone is not willing to read a whole book, if they will just read that one article, people have used it as a icebreaker and a conversation starter. 
Other things are, again, start at the shallow end of the pool. Can I tell you about the music that I would like played at my funeral? Oh, dad, don't be morbid. Well, it's going to happen sometime. It would really mean a lot if Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door is playing, you know? So I say start around the edges and see if there's a little something that they're willing to talk about. Or even when you think about my growing older, what is it that scares you the most? That's also a good question. So open it up. Oh, the other thing is giving away things. I mean, this is a sort of mercenary, but it'll work, which is, I want to know which of my things you kids really care about. And I want to put your names on the back of the frames or the bottom of the pottery so that when the time comes, it's going to be distributed to the people who really care about it the most. The more you normalize it for yourself, the more that's going to flow over to them. I notice a lot of people who aren't that comfortable themselves like to talk about, well, how do I get my friend to talk about the fact she's dying? And it's like, let her figure that out for herself. You get comfortable. You say, thank you. I love you. I really value that time we spent together. I think that's a great ending because the messages really get comfortable with it in and of yourself. And yeah. that radiates out. I understand now why my mom had me lie down in cemeteries on the grass, looking up at the trees. Oh, really? Because it was normal to be in a cemetery. It should be normal to be in a cemetery. Yeah, I think they're beautiful places. My family used to walk in cemetery all the time too. And these conversations don't happen all at once. You know, it's not like the birds and the bees conversation. You're going to sit down once and talk about it for three hours and be done. It's much more like, can you slip a little thing here and there into a conversation? Like take a walk in a graveyard, you know, talk about what kind of headstone you want. Talk about what mattered the most for you with your life. Talk about what makes them the most nervous if they might have to make a medical decision for you. Little things like I just don't want to end up on a feeding tube in a fetal position in a nursing home. That's actually my biggest fear. Which of you is going to feel comfortable being the person who says no? Oh, and sometimes I think the person to be your advanced directive person is not necessarily your closest partner. I picked someone who's a little more distant, a little more zen. Less emotionally involved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Thank you, Rachel and Katie. Thank you for sharing this deep work you're doing with us. Yeah, thank you. This is wonderful. I hope those of you who are listening grab a friend and, and really talk about what this brought up for you or what your next step is. It's all baby steps, you know, just to do one more thing in your own behalf that makes you have more peace of mind as you face the future that we all face. So, so thanks very, very much. I enjoyed this immensely. So thank you, Susie. And thank you to At Home With Growing Older. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. 
We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.